I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, even though Autumn's a little under the weather this week. And then later on in the pod, Starlet Thomas and I sat down with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, the pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois, and recently named Visiting Professor of Preaching at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. It is an incredible interview, and Dr. Moss is full of wisdom and energy and hope. So you want to stay tuned for that. Let's get back in the water. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, and I'm inviting you to join me in the water. Well, It's a virtual gathering, too. The Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Media will host its first webinar, Introducing the Raceless Gospel, on February 24th at 12 p.m. Central and 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll go down in the water of baptism, where we are invited to examine ourselves as members of Christ's body and to question why these color-coded labels stick to our skin. The webinar will be a safe space for you and for me, for all working to reconcile the North American church's history with race. It is also for those ready to embody a countercultural narrative that challenges the continued segregation of sacred space. I look forward to seeing you and to diving into this much-needed work. May our time together have rippling effects. The event is free. Please register at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are you feeling, girl? Okay, so the good news is that I am negative for COVID and I am negative for flu, but I'm positive for strep throat, which is so <laughs> 2019. Oh my gosh, girl, you got a throwback disease. <laughs> oh my God. It is. I mean, it feels like smallpox or something like strep throat. That's not trendy at all to have. Are the kids and Josh making you walk through the house? Strep, strep, <laughs> kind of like leper, <laughs> leper, unclean. They're just bringing like honey and throat lozenges to the bedroom door and then just running. No one wants to be close to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so, okay, so let me get this straight. Omicron is running rampant here in uh, Oklahoma with cases just uh-huh. through the roof. And And I know, which is good news on the East and West Coast uh, and around the world, numbers are coming down, praise God, but it always hits last here in the middle part of the the country. And so numbers are through the roof here. So it's running rampant in Oklahoma, you know, even uh, influenza type A is really prominent. And you decide, you know, anybody can get that. I'm going to get strep. (laughs) Exactly. I just really just didn't want to be like the rest of everyone. Um, You are an original girl. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So I am taking my meds and gargling with salt water and hoping you all can stand my throaty voice today. Always the rebel. Always the rebel. Well, I I really do hope you're feeling better. You you sound much better than you did a couple of days ago. So yes. <laughs> so well, anyway, um, lots going on in the news uh, this week. Um, let's start with the death of the voting rights bill. Um, Congress thought that they were going to be able to put together a bill and pass it before MLK Day. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, it ended up 
falling to the filibuster, and it's it's gone for a while. And so we're just heartbroken because we needed a national voting rights bill because the 1965 voting rights bill that was passed right after the Civil Rights Act was gutted by this current Supreme Court and basically Mm -hmm. thrown out the door. And it's this, again, right turn, Autumn, towards states' rights and states' ability to do what they want to and thumb their nose at everybody else, as well as thumb their nose to their own citizens who are the minority in their states. They don't have a say as they make it more difficult for people to vote. It's just maddening. Yes, that's what I was going to say. It's not only being chipped away by the current Supreme Court, but by each state. Um, Just sort of, it's like the wild, wild west out here. And if you are not a person um, who has a platform, then it's sort of like, you know, your voice and your vote doesn't count, which is not at all the way our country was constructed. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, obviously, yes, we are a republic. There is such thing as states' rights. But what happens when states do the wrong thing? And that's why the 1965 voting rights bill was passed was because southern states were enacting Jim Crow laws and suppressing the vote of African-Americans all throughout the South. And so uh, President Johnson at the time uh, pushed this bill through the United States Congress. It was signed by the president because states had to get federal permission on the rules that they set in their states. And so the Supreme Court throws all of that out, and we're back to square one. And so states are allowed to do anything they want to at this Mm -hmm. point. And state legislatures across the country, especially in the South, are doing just that. And again, we are right back where we were in the 1950s and 60s with state governments suppressing the black vote. Because the reality is, as Paul Weyrich said many years ago, the Republican Party does not want everyone to vote. Because when everyone participates in democracy, their ideology loses. Yes, they do. And here's the other thing. Some of these minority voices are not going to be the minority for that much longer, especially in places like Texas. So I think there's a lot of fear, and I think there are a lot of decisions being made based on those fears. Exactly. And, you know, in many places in Texas and Georgia right now, especially in urban locations and even some rural locations, that minority ethnic groups are becoming the majority very quickly. So the only way to combat that from a right-wing perspective is to suppress the vote. Even though they may outnumber them, if they don't outnumber them in the voting uh, booth, then they can still win and maintain control. And that's exactly what they're doing. That is their tactic. Yep, and that's why it's so important for people like you and me who do have platforms like this to address it and continue to call it out. And I want to I want to address this too because there's going to be some of our listeners because we've gotten some feedback throughout the past of why we're talking about this when we are a faith-based organization. Why are we becoming why are we talking about such political issues? Because in a democracy, your vote is part of is the extension of your humanity. You count in a democracy. You are a person, therefore you have a voice in how 
you are governed and how you participate in this great democracy of ours. So it's about humanity. It's about the humanness of each individual. And when somebody's vote is jeopardized, when it is suppressed, and when it is those rights are violated, then you are less of a human in another citizen's eyes. And so we fight for that humanness. We think that God created us all equal, and therefore we should be treated equally, not only in religious circumstances, but also in civic uh, circumstances. Therefore, under the law, each citizen is equal, and each citizen is valued, and therefore should have a voice. So as a person of faith, this is a moral, ethical, and yes, faith issue for me. Right, and it's literally in the Bible. Right? The, the, yeah. God treats us all equal. We're all the same in, we are all in the same. same. And so it's, yeah, we're not being radical. We're just, you know, preaching the Bible. Right. And, know. you know, <laughs> and, and talk about, you know, we talk about politics. And yeah, politics has a, an ugly name and it's got, it has gotten uglier ever since Watergate. But the reality is, politics is the art of governing, the art of policy making. And, Every citizen should be part of politics, and our faith should steer our politics. Our politics shouldn't steer our faith, but our faith should steer our politics. And part of my faith is making certain, no matter if people agree with me or not, that every person is counted and everybody has a voice. And when I look across the mm -hmm. landscape of this country, especially in states that are extremely conservative, I see time and time again those voices attempt those voices to be silenced and it's just it's really anger angering me yeah it's it's angering and it's frustrating to be banging our head against this very wall again but right. even though we were deflated this week i think that you know there's still hope on the horizon and we just have to keep keep marching forward i agree well let's uh, change subjects uh something else is going on across the country uh kind of Omicron adjacent, I'm going to say, Autumn. Uh, uh -huh. Again, uh, good news on the coast, uh, places like New York, uh, I think L.A., San Francisco, uh, some of the major uh, uh, coastal cities, we're seeing numbers begin to dwindle. Hopefully, this Omicron wave uh, is on its way down. Of course, here in middle America, uh, we're still seeing a rise in cases. But uh, there, there is hope on the horizon. But when I say Omicron adjacent, there's something going on in the local schools because mm -hmm. some local schools have had to go back to virtual learning, and it had nothing to do with the spread of Omicron. They did not make the decision based upon trying to prevent the spread of Omicron, but it was based simply on the fact that they had teachers and administrators out sick. And so they did not have enough personnel uh, to uh, fill a staff. And so mm -hmm. they had to go to virtual learning. So that's why I say it's Omicron adjacent. But all of a sudden, this very issue is becoming politicized by individuals on the right. Uh, our state superintendent, uh, who was recently appointed by our conservative governor, made a really backhanded statement uh, to teachers and and did, you know, I will give, give him credit from the standpoint saying that we've got to step up and, and, and help in these instances because there has been a shortage of substitutes. Uh, but that's been going on for years across the country, mainly because conservatives have vilified public schools. But nonetheless, 
he made a comment that uh, people should step up and, and help in these instances. So he took it upon himself the day after that comment and got a lot of blowback. He decided that he was going to volunteer as a substitute at a local school here in Oklahoma City. And therefore, he grabs his news crew or his uh, press folks, and they head down to a local school. He spends a couple of hours, I think, just kind of talking to students in a classroom, got a lot of photo ops, and then he peaced out. What do you think about this? You're a former school teacher, Autumn. Um, I am. Why, what is going on in our local schools right now? Well, I think I think we're talking to two different audiences. So, you know, when our kiddos return to school this fall, um, our school district here in Norman last year had a mask mandate. This year, there's no mask mandate for this school year. Um, and I was frustrated by that. A lot of us emailed the superintendent and said, hey, like the best way to keep our kids safe is if everyone's in a mask and we're just sort of, you know, knocked down or ignored. So when I post things about our schools, um, our friends who were in, you know, Colorado, New Jersey, Ohio, were like, what are you talking about? You don't have a mask mandate? So I think we first of all need to start there, that our situation here in Oklahoma and in Texas um, is not the same as everywhere else. And so that's where we're coming from, that the frustration for me is that we are not doing the things that we know, according to public health, can protect teachers administrators and students but instead we are sticking our head in the sand and waiting until so many teachers and students and it's not just the teachers but it's their children too you know if your child is is sick with omicron you can't go to work you have to stay home and isolate with them so instead of actually you know addressing the issue of being proactive it's a very very reactive response and it's it's almost like it's just too it's too late it's too little too late great you're going to go substitute um, by the way, not even wearing a mask. Um, I forgot you, you to mention know, that. I mean, I mean, it's just insult to injury. And I, you know, there are a lot of parents locally who are really frustrated by this and say they would rather go virtual and have their teachers able to teach them virtually rather than having someone who's like, has no concept of what unit we're on, has never even been in a classroom or had any kind of, you know, instruction. Substitute teaching is not for the faint of heart and it's not a two hour job either, Mitch. No. You know, it's just, it's just yeah. really frustrating. I, I it's saw like my the, mama do it for 30 point. years. <laughs> so I know, right. I know the hours. Just, they're just missing the whole point. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you bring up a great point because the mass mandate kind of launched this politicization of, uh, of COVID in a, on a local level within public schools. And it started almost immediately. Uh, when the, the pandemic broke, and uh, it seems like uh -huh. ages ago, but I can remember school board debates all across the country having this very argument to mask or not to mask. And it was, of course, fueled by the current administration at the time. But then it got even further, because once that debate, once that division was established, then we had the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor deaths. And then all of a sudden, you started hearing noise about CRT being taught in public schools, which, by the way, and for the record, and you're going to hear Dr. Moss talk about this in the interview, there's not one instance in the country where CRT has been taught from K through 12. Not one. It is a law school. It was started in Harvard. It's a high-level law school 
theory that is talked about in those settings. It's never been talked about in K through 12. Although I will tell you that as a former um, person who worked at a law school, I have had a couple of snarky law students post that they're going to start substitute teaching and they're going to teach CRT no matter where they are. <laughs> and I just had to laugh. They're not. They're just being silly. Right. Sure, but sure, it sure. was just a funny response. <laughs> right. So in with the division of the mask mandate uh, squarely rooted in the public schools now, now you laid this on. It, it was a made-up issue, and something's going on in our public schools that I think everybody needs to be aware of, Autumn, and that is there is a concerted effort by the religious right and the political right in America to take over lo local school systems because the end goal is to eliminate public education altogether. And I'm telling you, it's happening. Look in your public school right now and see what's happening. Never before has uh, public school board elections been politicized, but now you're seeing it time and time again. Mm -hmm. People saying they are conservative. They're going to take their schools back. Well, what they really mean is that they're going to take their schools back so they can destroy them <laughs> because they, they hate public education altogether. And so it's, it is really frightening what's going on across the country. Superintendents have had enough of it. They are resigning right and left. There's an incredible story that came out of Dallas-Fort Worth a few weeks ago. Richardson ISD, which is a ginormous school district in the Metroplex, uh, their superintendent, who was beloved by many people in that area, resigned because she had just had enough of the nonsense of uh, the rhetoric and pressure coming from the right. Um, I'm telling you, folks, they are trying to take over, and I'm so thankful there are voices through Good Faith Media and our other partners who are standing up to this nonsense and saying enough is enough. What we need is more and more people in a local level that are smart, wise, thoughtful, running for public office, running for school board elections, running for city governments, state governments, because you're the only way that this wave of conservative nonsense is going to stop, because it is frightening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just, what I'm really hopeful is that we can strip away all of this, all of the politics, all of the polarization, and can we just do what's best for kids? Yep. Can we just do what's best for our kids, educate them in a place that's safe, and surround them with people who will support them and cheer for them. That's what they need. Yeah, I agree. You couldn't. You said it best right there, that last statement. So thanks for that. <laughs> well, Autumn, we, you were down with uh, strep, as we know now, uh, this week. And so we got a pitch hitter to step in for you, uh, Reverend Starlet Thomas, uh, who is the director of our Raceless Gospel Initiative, also the host of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, which you want to go subscribe to right now. But uh, she mm -hmm. and I sat down with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, who is the senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ and recently named visiting professor of preaching at McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. And I'm telling you, Autumn, I'm sorry you were sick and missed this because Dr. Moss was <laughs> amazing. He was just so good. 
I'm looking forward to editing it so I can really listen. And I honestly, I'm so glad that Starlet was able to join you. I know she had been really eager to talk with him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a great interview. It's a long interview. So I forewarn you, uh, you may have to uh, put on the interview uh, wherever you're headed and then get back in the car, turn it back on and listen again. It's a, a two commute episode. It is a two commute episode, but I'm telling you, you are not going to want to miss anything that Dr. Moss has to say because he's fantastic. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and find us online at goodfaithmedia.com. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. But before I introduce our guest, I just want to let our listeners know that my co-host for Good Faith Weekly, Autumn Lockett, is out this week under the weather. Uh, No COVID, uh, just a uh, regular case of uh, strep. And so we wish her the best and praying for her quick recovery. Joining me on this interview is Reverend Starlet Thomas, who's also the host of the Racist Gospel podcast that you want to tune into. Now we've got a very, very special guest with us today. Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III built his ministry on community advancement and social justice activism as senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Moss spent the last two decades practicing and preaching a black theology that unapologetically calls attention to the problems of mass incarceration, environmental justice, and economic inequality. A native of Cleveland, Ohio, Dr. Moss is an honor graduate from Morehouse College. He earned his Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and Dr of ministry degree from Chicago Theological Seminary. He is the founder of Unashamed Media Group, a justice-centered faith-based agency committed to producing and curating stories to inspire the heart and challenge the mind. Dr. Moss is an ordained minister in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and the United Church of Christ. He's married to his college sweetheart, Monica. She herself, a Spelman College and Columbia University graduate, and they are the proud parents of two creative and humorous children. Dr. Otis, with all of that, sir, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. <laughs> well, it's great to be on the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, we've been all through this pandemic, Dr. Moss, we've been asking our guests uh, how you are faring during the pandemic. You and your family uh, healthy and doing okay? We're doing all right. Everybody is is relatively healthy outside of just wanting to get out of the house and having the pandemic pass by. So we are physically healthy. There are moments uh, because we are all enclosed together right. uh, where everybody is getting a little stir crazy from time to time. Well, we're glad to hear that. Uh, we are hopeful that maybe just this spring we're getting information that we're going to move from pandemic to endemic, which is beautiful news. And hopefully we'll be back to some kind of normalcy maybe by the end of summer. So uh, we're, we're crossing our fingers and sending up prayer after prayer that that happens. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you and I met, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, later in the interview, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, you, you preached a sermon at uh, Vernon AME, which was just stirring, to say the least. But let's begin here. I want to talk about heritage for a second and kind of 
the son and grandson of heroes. You are the son of an absolute American hero. Your father, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss Jr., is an American pastor, theologian, speaker, author, and activist. He is well known for his involvement in the civil rights movement and his friendship with both uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr., and so, in a little later in the interview, I want to talk about your grandfather and the short documentary that uh, your media group produced and talk about voting rights. My first question is this. How does your family heritage play a part in your prophetic ministry? Oh, w- wonderful question. I appreciate that. I was raised in, in a household where I thought it was normative for your faith in Christ to be deeply rooted in transformation of the community. So, so I didn't know that there were all of these denominations until I like went to college. I thought, you know, everybody's like, you love Jesus, change the world. That's what you're supposed to do. End of story. Then I met all these other folks who are like, oh, no, we, we're separate from the world. Oh, oh, no, you're going to hell. Oh, and I was like, who are you people? I never met you because it was primarily what you would call a, a freedom church, a civil rights church. So that entire close-knit family from uh, the movement uh, were were the people who spoke at the the anniversaries, the Women's Day, the Men's Day, all all of that. I I didn't know that women were not supposed to preach. I didn't find that out to college. I was like, really? I was like, women aren't supposed to preach. I didn't know if there were women that were not supposed to be deacons. It was just, all of this was normative for me growing up. And my mother and father were deeply rooted in the movement. My mother was the office manager for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, mm-hmm. and my father was a lieutenant and an organizer, uh, Atlanta sit-in movement and uh, for, for SCLC. And the idea of your commitment to the gospel is to spread into the world. Uh, you're not an exclusive person living in a corner somewhere where you're trying to get things set up for yourself. Uh, you're here to literally spread uh, the love, the compassion, the grace, uh, the transformation, the liberating gospel uh, is to be embodied, not to tell somebody to accept it, but you embody it. Uh, and I, I like the way that the Ethiopian tradition puts it this way, where in America, we say you must accept Jesus as your savior. In the Ethiopian tradition, it is I must embody Jesus Mm. in everything I do. And if you see me dance a beautiful sacred dance, maybe you might join in the music. That's a very different evangelism out of the African side of Christianity than it is in the Western side where there is a personal demand but no community commitment. I love that. I mean, that's that's a gorgeous way to illustrate it. You know, I can remember uh, in some of my seminary class reading David Bosch's book, uh, Transforming Missions, and and Bosch talks about letting the gospel get into your bones, mm-hmm. and that when we talk about conversion, especially in the West and uh, in Anglo churches, it's often this intellectual exercise that you know you're making a decision. But what you're describing, you know, especially in your heritage and, and in your bio, you talk about you know, this, this passion for social justice being in your DNA. It's the gospel in your bones, and that Ethiopian proverb, I think, speaks to that. So, I mean, I just can't imagine growing up in a household, uh, in a family, where that is, that's, that's the normative. As you, I mean, how inspiring was that for you, and, and how are you handing that down to your children now? It was it was completely normal. It was it was annoying and normal. Um, I mean, I was a kid. I was just, it was annoying and normal. I mean, that that's the way I, I viewed it. 
and I didn't realize what it was, a, what a gift it was until, till I got uh, much older and had witnessed the, uh, the varieties of schisms within, within the tradition and how many traditions were not engaged in transformation, were not embodiment, uh, were not uh, incarnational in their activity, were not prophetic and Pentecostal in their movement. Uh, and so I've been trying to uh, pass it on to my children. The beautiful thing is uh, my son decided to go to Morehouse College too. He's a, he's at Morehouse now, and so uh, uh, we're quite we're quite proud. He's third third generation, um, and, and they have taken up that that mantle also because <laughs> he had a run in with someone, and he was trying to figure out. He's like, "What, what faith are you?" He's <laughs> like, "What do you what, what do you mean you don't you, you love Jesus and you don't want to do anything for your community?" Are you? Do you know this guy? I mean, have you ever have you ever read the gospel? So it was quite funny with his frustration because he thought, again, this is normative. You're supposed to be committed to transformation, regardless of someone's faith tradition. I don't care if you're agnostic, you're atheist, you're Buddhist. You're to bring beauty into the world, um, and in the process, people then can get a glimpse of God's beauty through you. Mm. I mean, just beautiful. Thank you. Amen. So speaking of heritage, you, as I said a moment ago, you and I met in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the 100th anniversary remembrance of the Tulsa Race Massacre. I can still hear your sermon at Vernon Chapel AME uh, that weekend. As I recall that theme, you still ain't hearing me <laughs> when you were asked that question repeatedly. And I just, it just still resonates with me. So what did that moment, what did the Tulsa Race Massacre Remembrance mean to you as you walked on that sacred ground? It was, it was very emotional, uh, number one. Um, the, the invitation and to be in the space that at one time was this grand, thriving, really flourishing, majorly flourishing uh, community. And when the, the pastor took me out in the street and the markers of where the businesses were I, I was it just rocked my spirit so here's the movie theater this was an all an african-american movie theater and next to this here's where the financial center was and next to this here's the general store oh this is where the hotel was um and then next to the hotel, this was an insurance agency now the owner of the insurance agency her granddaughter is a member that's the woman who was way in the back who's <laughs> about 80 years old uh this was her grandmother's insurance agency i mean he just went down down the list of all of these thriving businesses these were not storefronts these were thriving businesses that didn't just do work in tulsa this was an insurance agency for the region for black people. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when Tulsa was wiped out, it also wiped out a substantial sector of African-American financial thriving. We, we, we have a tendency to think about these businesses as being Tulsa-centric. This was for the region and in some cases for the nation. And it just, it hit me when I was just, and then, and then I'm looking at the, the markers and there was 
we're, 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 we're beneath an underpass. So the Department of Transportation literally paved over sacred ground. I mean, it just, it hurt me to my core. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I walked that same ground that you did and Star was there with us. Um, you know, growing up, I'm, I'm a Tulsa kid, grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Of course, that story was never taught to me while I was, you know, in public schools there. I had to find out it, about the story later on uh, when I went to college. But what was really mind-blowing to me was I, I'd heard the story, I'd read the books about the massacre and the burning of North Tulsa and Black Wall Street. What was left out, even in the midst of that story, was exactly what you said, was looking at these businesses and this whole generation of black wealth was wiped away within mere days. Because the reason it was characterized for so long as a riot was because the insurance companies then did not have to pay losses. Mm-hmm. And so these black-owned businesses never rebuilt. And that was one of the things, if you, you looked at those plaques on the ground uh, uh, there at Greenwood, is that it would say most of them were not rebuilt. And right. it was like, the, it was, and, and, and North Tulsa is still suffering in some instances because of that. Uh, now, there are parts of North Tulsa now that are thriving. And this is, this is a microcosm of the entire country. Uh, but there's these moments in history where, you know, the, the white community and those in power just inserted this white patriarchy and this white Christian nationalism upon a group of people and has caused generational trauma that we're still dealing with today. And so it just, it was so powerful. And I was, I was honored to, to hear you preach and be around so many wonderful ministers uh, that weekend. So star, what did you think about uh, Tulsa and our time together there? I think I came in with the same um, feeling of weeping uh, and just disorientation. I think the challenge for me is always uh, this white supremacist narrative that it always talks over and then piles piles onto and then runs through, that, that all of that is intentional. And then it's this continuation of the habit that we get to tell the story, mm. right? It's, our, it's mm. nobody else's story to tell. We'll do what we want to do with you, and then we'll tell you when to speak. It is very much plantation-based human being and belonging. And so for me, I'm always deeply grieved when I go into those spaces, um, and it's always deeply troubled when someone tells me that this is how we should remember it, mm. that the persons that are there I mean, when we interview people and their families, they talk, they talked in hushed tones. Well, that reminds me of slavery, mm-hmm. that you still don't feel comfortable telling what happened to you because you know there's trouble coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's embodiment. That's an embodiment of terror that, I don't, that I, I don't think persons grasp often. And so I always make it my business to talk loud because women aren't supposed to. I'm from the <laughs> South. Um, you, you know, you, you treat it like children. Sure. And what do you know? You're so pretty and you can preach too. It's always amazing yeah. uh, the ways in which women are treated in, in sacred spaces and hollowed grounds and places that have been desecrated. It's, it's so, it's, so it's very interesting Sure. Um, that persons talk about weeping. Well, let's pick up on that. Yeah. Let's pick up on that. Uh, you mentioned who gets to tell the story and 
you know, Dr. Moss really eloquently told the story of what happened there at Greenwood 100 years ago. Well, last week, newly installed Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin from Virginia issued an executive order banning critical race theory that, that would be taught in Virginia public schools. Now, Dr. Moss, I got a few questions about this, obviously, but it's along this theme of who gets to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, just briefly, could you define CRT for our listeners? Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of actually what it is. Second, why in the world are white folks so scared of it? <laughs> and thirdly, what will happen if we allow our story our honest story in America to be forgotten or rewritten by those in power? Mm, that's a wonderful question. Well, let me start with the CRT definition. Two brilliant, amazing scholars, one by the name of Derek Bell and the other by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw was a student of Derek Bell and I myself am, am, am a student of Derek Bell, reading his faces and the, at the bottom of the well, and we are not yet saved. Derek Bell did a class. He found out that there are no classes at Harvard that talk about how race is intertwined in the legal system. So if we're going to talk about housing, how are you not going to talk about restrictive covenants? and how it kept people of African descent from building wealth. Mm -hmm. So here's Derek Bell, brilliant gentleman. He says, well, let's have a class on it. And so he creates a class uh, that we term to be critical race theory. In other words, let me be critical. Let me do an examination using a dialect, dialectical method uh, that examines law and examines housing, examines constitutional rights. This is a high-level law school class. A student of his by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw then comes along and adds to it and then talks about intersectionality, not just law and race, but law, race, and gender. Law, race, gender, and class, law, race, gender, class, and orientation. And so then she says, let's look at how when we do policy and when judges give a particular edict that these are embedded in it. High level legal class. Critical race theory is the examination on the on in in the scholar level in the in in law school. Mm -hmm. It's never been taught ever anywhere in the United States of America, K through 12. Right. That's just just the reality. Now, what people are upset about who are not critical, don't want to talk about race and have no theory, is the idea that we do not want to have any conversation about America's Confederate and antebellum ideology. In other words, we don't want to talk about race. So what a person by the name of Christopher Rufo did from the Manhattan Institute wrote an article that said critical race theory is dangerous and then lifted up incidents, uh, these, you know, kind of way out the, 
way incident. Hey, there was a there was a class in Seattle, and no one can ever find these classes. He's always talking about. There's a class in Seattle, Seattle, where some students felt bad about being white. We've got to get rid of critical race theory. Yeah. As a result of that article, he ends up on Fox News. While he was on Fox News, Trump heard him on Fox News. And Rufo went viral and became the leader of the anti-CRT movement. Mm. They then have Manhattan Institute and a few other of these conservative institutes have meetings of how to organize to take back, this is interesting, take back uh, school boards. How do we do that? You create grievance among parents that somehow white people are losing or being encroached upon well what's the latest boogeyman critical race theory it's not critical race theory it's what they're talking about is we don't want black history talk we don't want anything that sheds a quote non-patriotic light mm-hmm. on american history because patriotism has been defined as some form of puritism you know it's got to be it's a purity it's it's this, this it's a new purity culture where I cannot show any blemish on American culture. On, and that translation is, I can't show any blemish on supposed, and I have to say supposed, right. white culture, because that, that's a whole other conversation about sure. whether some white actually exists. Mm-hmm. Because you're only white in America. If you go over to England, they ask you, are you Scottish? Are you Irish? And anyway, <laughs> right, you, right. Become af- you become ethnic at that moment. You can stay you right there. Ethnicity. You can see right there. Yeah. And it didn't exist until until 1680. That is a exactly. Self-identity. It's purely socially <laughs> constructed. It's just mm-hmm. made up. Mm-hmm. Because there so, are no uh, people don't come from colors. They come from countries. It's exactly. only in America that we do this. That's right. That, exa- I mean, there there is no. For example, ethnicity has food, culture, music. I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody should be down with with um with ethnicity. Sure. So no one says, hey. You know, I've got to get me some white food. I gotta get, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me get some white shoes. You know, I mean, right, yeah, right. it's a color, but it's not. No, it's not cultural. Sure, gotcha. It's not. It's not country based. It doesn't have a historical basis. It's just solely, a very much an American way of thinking. Um, and so, critical race theory is is really about this idea of white fear, and we've got to find a way to uh, expand our base or energize our base. And the energy has been around. Something has happened. Um, we're we're losing. So Virginia, they banned Toni Morrison's <laughs> beloved. Um, in Texas, they they banned the book. You know, uh, New Kid, which is basically about a new kid who shows up. It's 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 a graphic novel. It's a wonderful book mm-hmm. uh, about a new kid who shows up. His name is Jordan. Uh, and they keep calling him like Jamal. And you know, he has all these experiences, but he's just a basic black kid in a primarily white environment and they've banned that because they said that it it makes white students feel bad and it's just really about a typical kid who just shows up and the experiences that you have when you're a new kid at school right so what they've been able to do is say anything that we don't agree on is critical race theory anything that makes me feel bad is critical race theory anything that talks about race is critical race theory where they're even putting critical race theory trump just recently said the way that we're passing out therapeutics for, <laughs> for I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I have to because it's so insane. The way we're doing therapeutics and COVID tests, they're using critical race theory, and that's why white people aren't getting it. I mean, they have gone insane with this thing. Oh, my gosh. But incredibly, it's effective. 
because they're at the core of of confederate ideologies that's what i call it confederate ideology is this deep fear that i won't be white anymore that i've got to go back to being irish and scottish and all of a sudden i lose my power but that's really where the gift is when we become ethnic again then all of a sudden we can share our music and our history and we can share our diversity without threat and we can work we can work through things so i can talk about celtic culture um, and I can talk about African culture. I can talk about being Jamaican and I can talk about being Scottish. I can talk about being German and I can talk about being from Belize and Garufuna. I can talk about that. Um, and we can then find a very jazz narrative of bringing together things. But as long as we have this idea that uh, comes in the 1600s, that there's one group that's superior and another group that's, that's inferior, it's a problem. We will always, we will always be spitting in the face of God in the process. So yeah. y'all hear the Reverend Dr. Bishop Otis Moss talking about racelessness? <laughs> y'all not hear that? I don't know if y'all are catching on that yeah. it is a sociopolitical construct that there, that we have something deeper than this skin here. He just unpacked it for you. Yeah, I think we've heard that from somebody else at Good Faith Media. I just want uh, you to know that it's out there and that brilliant people, brilliant people like the Reverend Dr. Bishop Otis Moss get it. Yeah. Absolutely, and Dr. Moss, you know, I'm I'm Native American. I'm a citizen of the, the Muscogee Tribe uh, here in Oklahoma, uh, with the descendants uh, from the Southeast. Do you That's think what I'm talking about? Come yeah, on now, yeah, bring so, your ethnicity to the table. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, theologically, do you think? Because I, as as an Indigenous person, I get asked all the time about the the conquering of our people, the genocide of our people. I often say the United States was built upon the genocide of one people and the enslavement of another. Uh, yes. Just That's just fact. And But theologically, the, the idea of manifest destiny, do you th what part did that play in creating this, this idea, ideology as well as praxim of white supremacy? That God... Mm -hmm looks down upon the world and has placed me a little bit above everybody else. And therefore I've got to rule everybody else. Because when we talk about critical race theory, yes, that's today's issue and topic, but this has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah. Because before critical race theory, there was a deep fear within the political realm around this idea of black power. Like, wait a minute. No, don't, please don't right. start talking to me in your businesses. This is dangerous. Sure. You know, this is really dangerous. You get the vote. So there was the same response about, we can't have black power taught in schools. And when you're speaking about manifest destiny, which is the, the way that I, I, I frame it is that America has never been Christian. It's been capitalist with Christian clothes. There you go. So, so it has the ecclesiastical Pascal garment. So manifest destiny. My father put it this way. I love the way he said it. He said, when America finds something uh, that's profitable, they make it politically acceptable uh, and then theologically affirm it. Mm. So it begins with profit and then passing a law to make it politically acceptable. And then the theologians come as the taillight to affirm what the capitalists discovered as profit. And so we have to remove our theological framing, our spirituality, 
from a capitalist model that says if it's profitable, I got to support it. So that's why you have all these free market preachers who are talking about <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre thing. Um, whether you're talking about the idea of prosperity gospel, or they're saying, which is a strange thing, that capitalism and Christianity or free markets are connected to freedom. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I, those are two separate things, a free right. market and your ability to vote. Mm -hmm. Those are two separate things. They're not the same. Um, and so we really have to do a real critique of capitalism because it's so much, it's so embedded in the way that we do things. Now, there is a theologian, uh, his Masala was the last name, I think Masala, South African, um, and another um, uh, theologian by the name of George Tinker, who is a professor of mine at the University of Denver, who's, who's Native American. Um, and he said this, he said, hey, you know, from my nation, we're down with Jesus, but I we don't like that Old Testament because remember, we're Canaanites. Mm. And so when you use the Exodus narrative as an African-American, you connect to this idea of liberation. When I see the Exodus narrative, I don't see myself as Moses and let my people go. I'm waiting in the promised land. I get my land stolen. Yeah. The same South African said that for African-Americans, the Exodus narrative makes complete sense. As a South African, we're the Canaanites mm. because the, the, you know, the, the Dutch and the, uh, the English came over with the manifest destiny idea. And we've got to interrogate uh, some of our, uh, our narratives. And that's part of the piece in terms of, uh, I got a good friend named Rami Nashashibi. Um, he is a Palestinian. He is, his family is from Bethlehem. And there was an evangelical trying to convert him one day. He said, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I, I know who he is. He says, my family's from Bethlehem. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, I'm a Muslim, though. See, please know that people who look like me are in the area you claim to be promoting. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. He said, don't forget Jesus. Look, and he's a, he's, he's a dark-skinned Palestinian Muslim. <laughs> Speak a word. <laughs> and he said, please, please be reminded. Please be reminded now. Exactly. He said, exactly. they look like me. You know, said, um, so, so we really have so much that we have to yeah. interrogate and sure. unpack because we make these assumptions. Yeah. Our Do we need to interrogate that blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer Jesus that's floating around here? <laughs> Who's, who is that guy? You know, it's like, who is that Jesus? I have no idea who that guy is. You know, he should be hanging you know, out with Seth Rogen or something. Okay. I don't know who he is. What's interesting <laughs> about that question, uh, Star, is that that surfer Jesus is now being replaced with a militant Jesus. Mm. And... And you may not see them in Maryland Star, and Dr. Moss, you may not see them in Chicago. But here in the great state of Oklahoma, I see a lot of bumper stickers. <laughs> and it is, I'm no sheep, I'm a lion. Hmm. And it's this perpetuating of God, the, the militant, Jesus, the militant. And, hmm. you know, it, it's very aggressive. It's very patriarchal. Um, and it seems as though that's the new image that this ideology and theology is now circling around. It's 
And it, it just has exploded with the rise of Trumpism in the notion that you have to win at all costs, but not only win, you've got to destroy your enemy and humiliate yes. them at the same time. And it's, it's really, it's, it's interesting, but th- there's this big movement that, that I see afoot, uh, especially in the more conservative states of a Jesus that is buffed, a Jesus that is, you know, carrying his AK-47, and he, he's, he's looking he's, for a he's fight. Like protein, he's like, he's protein. <laughs> That's right. Wait, but y'all do know that Walter Brueggemann has a book, right? The word militant. I'm just, it's from our previous conversation, Dr. Moss yeah. had mentioned all the books that Walter right. Right. written. He does. You know book. he has a book for this, right? It's mm-hmm. titled The Word Militant. Yeah. So, okay, let's change subjects, because there's another issue floating about that is extremely important that I'm quite certain uh, that uh, you are addressing not only theologically and from the pulpit, but uh, in activism as well. A majority of federal lawmakers are attempting to pass a voting, a new voting rights bill. Uh, been trying to pass it. They were hoping to pass it by MLK Day. That didn't happen. It looks like it's dead on arrival in the Senate. Uh, I think they're going to, if they haven't voted on it today, they're going to vote on it soon. Uh, looks like it's going to be unsuccessful. Now, I want you to know, preparing for this interview, I got to see the documentary about your grandfather, Otis Sr., and his plight to vote and his being rejected to, to do so. It was a powerful, powerful documentary. It's so well done. And it was it was lovely to see that story being told through your father, through your voice, and your son's voice. It was just, it's a beautiful story. So my question is, first of all, why are we still struggling with this issue? Second of all, why do we need a federal law? Because what I get pushed back on, well, this is a, this is a, um, a republic, and so states handle elections. The federal government doesn't handle elections. And finally, is there a chance that this thing is going to pass because the filibuster rule is not going to be overturned, and it just doesn't look like there's any hope for this particular bill? So those are a lot of questions, but let's talk voting rights. Yeah, there's a lot lot packed in there. Um, The first thing is the reason we need a federal law, a federal protection, the right to vote has been a continual fight in in this country. You have the Dred Scott decision of 1857 uh, that a black person has no rights that a white person is bound to protect. Um, and then you move into the, the first uh, voting rights or the, uh, the civil rights uh, acts of the 1800s and, and then eventually the passing of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, but the compromise that was made after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln uh, with uh, the Vice President Johnson at the time, uh, who wanted to appease the Southern plantation class. And all of those who fought against the Union within A year and a half, they were back in power. The Civil War was fought over slavery, synonym, states' rights. Mm. They said our state 
has the right to enslave. And Southern states have used the term states' rights to restrict constitutional rights, undermining constitutional rights consistently. So here you have it, Reconstruction, one of the most progressive periods in American history. Soon after, four million people are released from bondage. Within a matter of months, you have black legislators on a state and federal level. And what do they do? Do they take revenge against the plantation class? No. One of the pieces of legislation that we still embrace today that no one acknowledges, uh, like the Congressman Robert, uh, uh, Robert Smalls and uh, Senator Hiram Revels, is they said, you know, there's all these uh, enslaved, formerly enslaved children who need education. Let, let's set up a school system for them, but not just for them, it should be for all. And what we know is the public school system, what we now call early childhood education, was formed by black legislators. What was the problem there? The problem was is the policies that are usually passed by black people always empower black people and other people in the process. Whenever, whenever we do anything to save democracy, everybody is blessed in the process. You know, we, we, we believe in uh, equitable blessings for everybody. Um, but what was happening was there was a fear just as what happened in the 1600s with the Bacon Rebellion in Virginia. Poor whites, those on in, in Native American nations saw a coalition at that moment. And the Southern plantation class was terrified. And as a result of the Reconstruction backlash, we have gone down the trajectory of the restriction of voting rights ever since. Mm -hmm. So we move from all of these major policy shifts, major advancement to the peonage system, the sharecropping system, the vagrancy laws, the mass incarceration system, and the criminalization of black and brown bodies. If we vote and expand the vote, you're talking about, again, this modern, I call them the modern plantation class, mm -hmm. losing their power once again. The filibuster was designed specifically to empower Southern states to block civil rights legislation. Dr. King says, the greatest enemy to black people is not the white citizens council. It is not the KKK, but it is the white moderate who stands in opposition of forward movement of civil rights legislation, which ends up blessing everybody. So when you have the legislation, if you're in Appalachia where you don't have as many polling places, well, guess what? Your rights are expanded. When you have the legislation, when you're in a rural area somewhere out west, your rights are expanded. The filibuster has been changed 169 times, but now they want to act as if it's never been done in American history. So we will hold a Senate rule 
above a constitutional right. They're, they're usually supposed to be flipped around. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> the constitutional right is first, and then the Senate rule. The only reason that we are in this particular moment right now, well, there are a variety of reasons, but because of the addition to certain people on the Supreme Court, they gutted the Voting Rights Act, 65. And no longer do Southern states have to go to the Department of Justice to say, right. okay, we're abiding by the rules. They can vote. Um, they don't have to do that. The moment that that came down, organizations statewide went into overdrive to create policies to keep people from voting. Now, you will have people who will say, well, don't use the term Jim Crow. Well, guess what? Jim Crow was, the term was a nickname. Every law, the law of my grandfather, the law that blocked my grandfather, which was led by a governor by the name of Talmadge, was, was called voter integrity. They, they wanted to make sure that there would be no black voter fraud, what they called, well, he didn't use the word black. Um, there, he didn't use it at all. He was very clear in terms of the words that he used on the campaign trail that if I'm governor, no blank will ever vote in a Democratic primary in Georgia. And so the integrity laws of 1946 are the same laws of 2022 designed to restrict people's ability to vote. Why? Because if we expand the electorate, Stacey Abrams will be governor of Georgia. Mm -hmm. If we expand the electorate, John Ossoff and also Senator Raphael Warnock will remain as senators in the Senate. And what's interesting is Warnock, who's a, cl who's a classmate of mine from Morehouse, a good friend of mine, and he is holding the senatorial seat of Governor Talmadge, who blocked my grandfather from voting, he's holding Talmadge's son's seat in the Senate. So it was the Talmadge family, <laughs> <laughs> who I mean, father wow. and son, who are working right. to block all of the, you know, all this legislation. Sure. And the way they structured the runoff system in Georgia was specifically designed so a black or a Jew could not be in the Senate. Mm -hmm. But look who's there. Look who's there. <laughs> so we, God's hand is in all of this. Right. You, we have to be real clear. Sure. That, and that's, why, that's part of the problem. People don't look at the large arc of the divine, sacred hand of God weaving in places that are destructive and broken and seem to be a cesspool. Grace still breaks through. Mm. And... On. It's almost a good thing that Stacey Abrams didn't win. Why is that? Here's the thing. Stacey Abrams, instead of organizing in Fulton County and Gwinnett County in, in, in large urban areas, she said, we're going to go to the rural areas first. Mm -hmm. Because if there are 30%, you know, black people in rural areas, a 30% uh, Latino, maybe there are 30% people who are just sick of the, 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 the Republican sure. Party. If they know their voting power, will flip the state. The only way she didn't become governor was because they purged 200,000 people from the rolls and she lost by 80,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So this is serious. So the yeah. person who is governor of a state is able to decide, for, for example, 
state-funded schools, colleges, where the allocation of money will go. A governor, when Governor Carter was governor of Georgia, he changed the outcome with Andrew Young of how many engineers and doctors were coming out of Georgia, which ultimately changed the number of engineers and doctors in the entire Southeast, where right now Atlanta produces 60 to 70 percent of every engineer that does any work on a bridge, on a building, anywhere in the southeastern United States, most of them black. Mm-hmm. Because they partnered together. Right. That, that's the power of this. That's that's what yeah. and we have forgotten that we, you know, we're like, hey, who's who's gonna be president? Now, tell me who's gonna be judge, governor, tell me who's gonna be on the school board. There you go. That's where the power is. I'm not saying don't worry about a presidential election. But judges are lifetime appointments. Mm-hmm. If we raise up a generation of ethically rooted, spiritually powerful, historically minded judges, we don't have to worry about on a local level of some things going to the Supreme Court <laughs> because they're going to throw them out before they <laughs> get there. Right, 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 right. Because uh, we, we will have some, on a local level, we have some just brilliant people who are like, this is nothing but someone who's not critical, doesn't know race, and you ain't got no theory. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Moss, I could s- literally talk to you all day. You are a wealth of knowledge, and you have give, you graciously have given us a lot of time uh, talking about these critical uh, issues that we're facing today as a society. It can get easy to look at the darkness. But at Good Faith Media, we try to look at the light and let that light penetrate the darkness. Sir, leave us with some light. Where is the hope that we can cling to that the gospel is rooted and growing and that the light of God is shining and that justice is beginning to roll down like a river? He's asking for some hope and a hoop. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting to slap your back across this room. I am I'm so reminded of uh of a protest that we we were invited to do uh not too long ago uh as as a church. It was a it was a BLM Black Lives Matter protest. There was a killing here in uh in Chicago and our, our church went. Uh, to Bronzeville. Bronzeville was the historic black neighborhood where uh, of the Great Migration. And we were all on the south side of the street, Trinity United Church of Christ, the House of Hope, Progressive uh, Baptist Church, all the the organizers. And, you know, we were all on the, on the, on the south side of the street. You know, we just, you know, slapping hands. You know, we had our masks on. We bumping fists and everything. It was early in the pandemic. And then somebody said, what is that over there? And we looked over on the other side, and we saw all these basically kids on bikes. They had skateboards. I said, they, they, we're like, they're white. What are they doing here? There are mothers with, rolling their, with their children. And they had signs that said, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And so we started marching, and they said there were more of them in the march than there was us. <laughs> And, and it was one of the most beautiful thing, you know, to see that when somebody had a sign, the little ch- child had a sign that said, white silence um, means agreement. 
And so I walk up. I'm next to my friend Rami Nashibi, who's Muslim, and Rami's tripping. He said, "Man, look, look at all these white people." Here. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I know." I said, "This is something." I... And then it dawned on me, at that moment, we were seeing the working of God's sacred jazz. Mm. At that moment, because jazz music is the only truly American music. It brings together. Uh, what is Native American, what is African, what is French, what is Spanish, uh, what is German. It takes instruments that are not supposed to play together. The piano is, is classical. The saxophone is, is for, the, uh, for the marching band. The, the drum is to be played in a particular way, but not with African polyrhythms. And the bass is to be used with a bow, but not with your fingers. But they all can play together. But the unique thing is that everybody gets to solo out of their own cultural narrative. They can speak out of the culture that they have been given. And so there I was with, with my crew, with another crew that's not supposed to play together. And we were fighting for democracy. And I felt that God was playing a love supreme in the midst of it. And it was just a beautiful thing to witness. And when I remember that, I remember the beloved community. When I remember that, I remember that the walls can come down. When I remember that, I think about the shouts around Jericho and the brick getting so happy that they have to mm -hmm. jump out of place so that a new city literally can be constructed. And I believe that when we hold on to those moments, that we can see a new day begun uh, for our for our nation. I love that. I'm going to steal God's sacred jazz. That. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> that's beautiful. We can give you a book. Blue note, <laughs> Blue note preaching in a post-soul yep, world. Exactly finding right. hope in an age of despair. <laughs> by the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss. Come on in here. <laughs> oh. You thought I wasn't going to give you another book? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you think I'm playing with y'all today? <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, Dr. Moss, again, thank you so much for your time. we got one last question for you. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is... There's more to tell. Autumn usually asks this question, but uh, I'm going to ask it uh, in her place today. So with all that's going on in the world, with uh, the incredible ministry that you are involved in at Trinity United Church of Christ and Unashamed Media, sir, what is your more to tell? Well, I, I am a movie and a comic book nerd, without a doubt. Uh, love movies, love comic books. Hey, love music, without a doubt. And I am currently in the very early stages of working on a comic book. So I want to be one of the first preachers that I've got. I got a movie, I did a book, and I did a comic book. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's a comic book about uh, uh, two very uh, twins uh, who are 12 years old. One is called Love and one is called Justice, and they're making their way down to Georgia to meet uh, their grandmother who is about to be installed as a deacon emeritus at the old Mount Olive Baptist Church. And in the process, they find their superpowers, they find their family's secrets, and they learn about their history, and they learn how they can fight and live out their names together. Because love can't function without justice, and justice can't function without love. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. <laughs> so we're going to let you go so you can get to writing, sir. 
Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Well, Dr. Moss, again, thank you so much for being a guest this week. If you want to know more about uh, Dr. Moss and his ministry, you can go to trinitychicago.org and uh, check out uh, all that's going on in the great uh, church there in Chicago. And please check out the, their media group at unashamedmedia.com. Lots of great videos and, uh, and Bible studies there and just doing some great, great work for the gospel and for justice. And so, Dr. Moss, it's been an honor, sir. Thank you for being a guest. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And Star, thanks for filling in today. You did a great job. Appreciate you. Star, you have to do stand-up. Really <laughs> <laughs> One of my, my well-kept secrets. <laughs> well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in this week. And as always, until uh, our return next week, keep living good faith.